Welcome to this Gastroenterology Learning Network podcast. My name is Brian Lacey. I'm a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. I am absolutely delighted to be speaking today to Dr. Baha Moshiri, Professor of Medicine and Director of the Motility Laboratory in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Atrium Health in Charlotte, North Carolina. Our topic today is one that is important for every healthcare provider, regardless of specialty, and that's irritable bowel syndrome. Baha, thank you for joining this podcast today. Let's begin simply to set the stage for our listeners. How common is irritable bowel syndrome, which we'll frequently refer to today as IBS? Thank you, Brian. I'm really excited to be on this podcast, and it's definitely a topic that's of great interest to me, our patients, and I know our gastroenterologists around us. So irritable bowel syndrome is a chronic abdominal pain condition, as we all know, and the prevalence in the United States, at least, is about 5%. We spent a huge amount of healthcare dollars, up to $10 billion dollars in the United States on pharmaceutical drugs and diagnostic testing to treat our patients who have irritable bowel syndrome. And there is also a mental and physical burden on both society caregivers of patients with IBS and of course our patients. And I would say probably during COVID, these diseases that we used to and disorders that we used to refer to as irritable bowel syndrome have just really escalated. And so this is really fantastic to have this right now for our audience. So obviously a common problem with a huge impact to patients and to the healthcare system as well. So Baha, why a guideline on IBS? Aren't review articles and original research articles, isn't that enough for our healthcare providers and practitioners? So I think maybe before I actually worked on this guideline with you, Brian, <laughs> I may have felt that, you know, just reading studies and manuscripts you know, especially with original papers was very valuable, but going through the process of this whole grade system, which is really the grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation, and this rigorous way that we really met monthly, went through all the international studies that have been done, whether it was on the diagnostics or the pharmaceutical drugs, and looked at the study populations, looked at the outcomes, made sure that the studies designs were valid, the statistical findings were valid, and that we picked the most robust studies to really make these recommendations that we made. And this is the first guideline that the ACG did on IBS because we actually had a lot more interventions and drugs that we had available. Other than that, dietary recommendations that we'll talk about, psychotherapies, neuromodulators, etc. So it was really the most rigorous way of analyzing this. And we used the Delphi method where all the experts had to agree on these recommendations. And then we gave the recommendations a point system on terms of the strength of the recommendations, and then also the level of evidence based on all of the studies that we have. So much better way, I think, of you know making decisions for our GI physicians. Yeah, great overview. So really a very strict and rigorous process that allows us to really look at this data in a comprehensive manner. So in this guideline, there were 25 key questions that were addressed. Let's begin with a number of kind of short questions about the diagnosis of IBS. We'll focus on that first. What is the recommendation about testing for celiac disease in patients with IBS and why? For this celiac diagnosis, you know, the prevalence of celiac is about less than 1% in the United States. 
And in patients specifically with irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea, after reviewing all of the studies that we had available to us, we found that patients who have IBSD have three times the risk of having celiac sprue. And the symptoms of celiac, you know, can be patients can be totally asymptomatic, but they can also have other ramifications other than just abdominal pain, diarrhea, and in some patients even constipation. But there are neuropsychiatric issues that can happen in celiac. Infertility is a risk factor in patients with celiac disease, which is very important, obviously, to men and women in the age ranges that IBS occurs, which is in the 20s and 30s. And then also, importantly, the risk of malignancy, which is lymphoma, is important. So after review of the studies, because of this increased risk in patients with IBS, we made the recommendation of at least doing serologic testing, which is fairly non-invasive with the tissue transglutaminase IgA, and then serum IgA testing to make sure they don't have IgA deficiency as a minimum, because it would really impact those patients that could have celiac disease and then dictate their treatment going forward with the gluten-free diet and others. Upper endoscopy was not necessarily advocated because it is invasive. So small bowel biopsies are not necessarily needed, although that is the gold standard. And we decided that the sensitivity and specificity of serologic testing is good enough for that to be the recommendation. Absolutely. And one thing that you kind of alluded to, too, is don't forget that some patients may have IBS and celiac disease. They're not. Mm -hmm. It's either or. So sometimes they coexist. Focusing on a bit of a different population too, there's always the concern, does somebody have IBS or do they have IBD, inflammatory bowel disease? What tests uh, were recommended by the guideline to help distinguish these two disorders? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, there's a lot of concern for patients. You know, they, there are commercials on TV about different drugs for inflammatory bowel disease. Usually the symptoms are can be indistinguishable in like 40% of patients. So these do overlap. And after having five years of symptoms of IBS, there is an increased risk of developing or having IBD. So in the, especially the patients that have the diarrhea predominant IBS, the recommendations were for stool testing, and this is with stool calprotectin and stool lactoferrin. The stool calprotectin had a better sensitivity and specificity. The studies with lactoferrin were less robust. However, we recommended both based on the data that we now have available to us. And then doing serology testing with CRP was also a recommendation where stool testing is not available. And also CRP testing is actually much more accessible to many centers and the testing comes back much quicker than the stool testing. So we also recommended serology testing where that's available. And this really helps because this is again, inflammatory bowel diseases have a totally different treatment than IBS with diarrhea specifically. And that would also change management quite a bit. And we also made a point that alarm symptoms also would dictate testing for inflammatory bowel diseases in a patient that has irritable bowel syndrome. So taking a really good history is important in terms of rectal bleeding, weight loss, family history of inflammatory bowel disease is also very important. Great. So a great teaching pearl for our listeners today for a patient that might possibly have IBS or IBD, that fecal calprotectin, that's normal. A normal CRP in the absence of warning signs is very reassuring that it's not IBD. 
so Baha, we know that many patients develop IBS, this post-infection IBS after an enteric infection. What's the utility of testing for an enteric pathogen in patients with chronic IBS symptoms? The enteric infections, of course, any kind of food poisoning, whether it's bacterial, viral, or parasitic, they are common. There are 20,000 cases of parasitic infections in the United States every year. And this pertains to Giardia, which causes a condition called Giardiasis that can affect the small bowel and colon, causing like a watery diarrhea. There's also Cryptosporidium. And then bacterial infections like Campylobacter, E. coli, etc., can also occur. 11 to 14% prevalence of IBS exists in patients after having bacterial infections. So these are relatively common. It's a is called post-infectious irritable bowel syndromes. And then of course, with COVID-19, there's also this increased risk of developing symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. However, when we reviewed the records, we found that in a patient that has chronic symptoms of diarrhea and abdominal pain, the usefulness of just checking for bacterial infection and viral infections really diminishes since those are like more acute causes of diarrhea. However, specifically for Giardia antigen, if there is that exposure history, for example, if they you know, were camping or were swimming in a water um, system that may have been exposed to Giardia, contacts that were sick or you know, travel abroad, et cetera, then there is utility in checking a Giardia antigen. So the recommendation based on review of the studies was that if there is that exposure history, that Giardia antigen specifically should be checked for. And it's an easy stool test that can be obtained. And then that would then dictate treatment. So that's the only one that really could have similar symptoms to chronic diarrhea and IBS type symptoms. Wonderful. Baha, I know you see a lot of patients sent in for second, third, fourth, fifth opinions, and I'm sure you see many younger patients with IBS who have had one, if not two colonoscopies. We know the peak for diagnosing IBS patients is kind of late, early 30s. It's kind of a disease of younger patients. So what's the utility of performing a colonoscopy in younger patients with IBS symptoms without warning signs? So based on several studies, you know, performing a colonoscopy is not helpful, even in assuring a patient that they don't have a malignancy. There is, you know, there's a level of concern, of course, when patients have abdominal pain or symptoms of either, whether it's alternating diarrhea constipation or diarrhea with or without constipation. And taking a good history, showing that there's a good communication between the patient and the physician is doing a great thorough physical examination, for example, those are all really helpful in the absence of any alarm symptoms. Of course, alarm symptoms would dictate that the patient would need a colonoscopy. Family history of colon cancer would dictate that. And also importantly, the age at which a screening colonoscopy should be done is now decreased to 45 years of age based on the U.S. task force findings that younger people are getting colon cancer. So really 45 is right now the cutoff age for having just a screening colonoscopy, but that's different than for the diagnosis of IBS. For the diagnosis of IBS, doing a colonoscopy really does not assure patients and has not been found to be helpful because there's not increased risk of polyps in patients and there's not increased risk of colon cancer in patients who have irritable bowel syndrome symptoms. Great. Thank you. That really helps our listeners. And this is a great segue because you kind of talked about 
a good patient visit, listening, educating, reassuring, not necessarily just doing test after test. And there are two statements in the guideline that focus on the need to make a positive diagnosis for patients with IBS rather than operating on a diagnosis of exclusion. Can you comment on why that's so important? There's been multiple studies actually um, looking at exclusionary approaches by physicians doing diagnostic testings, whether it's colonoscopy or imaging versus this positive diagnosis for patients with IBS. And they actually, both approaches had the exact same outcome when it was looked at at one year. And acceptance of the therapy and its adoption by patients actually led to a decrease in anxiety. As we all know, anxiety and depression are comorbidities of patients who have irritable bowel syndrome. So the confidence that we as providers can bring to a patient by giving this positive diagnosis that you know your diagnosis is irritable bowel syndrome and this is now my treatment plan and really getting the patient to understand their disease process from whether it's pictorials, um, pictures can be supremely helpful, showing them the brain-gut interaction and how this has a central and a peripheral component to pain and that it's important for us to treat both to get a better management plan going forward is very helpful. Of course, 70% of gastroenterologists, based on the survey, still stated that the IBS for them is a diagnosis of exclusion, but 80% of the costs in healthcare that's spent on IBS is driven by testing. So again, there's also this economic burden that over-testing creates, but a lot of that also has to do with the decreased time that providers have to spend with their patients when they're in clinic. I mean, literally, you know, an hour ago, I saw a patient who agreed that she probably has irritable bowel syndrome, but she didn't really understand the pathophysiology of the disorder. The fact that the comorbidities she has, which were fibromyalgia and anxiety could be related. And I think once she understood everything, it was like, you know, five years of diagnostic testing were just washed away. Wow. Great teaching points. And I think uh, another great point to emphasize, as you've already done, is be positive about that diagnosis. So don't say, Mrs. Jones, you might possibly have IBS. Say, in my experience, you have IBS. Now this is what we need to do. Be positive and make that diagnosis confidently. Baha, before we shift gears to the treatment of IBS, one last question about diagnostic testing. What about the role of anorectal manometry? Aren't anorectal disorders really more of an issue in patients with chronic constipation? Absolutely. It's the same in actually when we did review the records. So this this diagnostic guideline was actually the hardest to grade for our statisticians and our grading team because of lack of data. And some of the data, the stu- some of the studies were actually constipated patients. The others had both patients who had chronic idiopathic constipation and IBS with constipation. It was hard to differentiate the two. However, after review of the studies that we had available to us at least, patients who have irritable bowel syndrome, 40% of them can have an overlap with this synergic defecation. And of course, we all know that these are disorders that affect women in their 20s and 30s who most likely have had pregnancies, whether vaginal or C-section, and specifically the symptoms of painful evacuation, digital disimpaction, which are more pelvic floor disorder symptoms. And then a long duration of this constipation symptoms all overlapped with this synergic defecation in IBS patients. And then the most importantly, this can affect outcomes because the patients that were identified as having this synergic defecation and underwent biofeedback therapy, they actually had improvement in even their abdominal bloating and abdominal pain 
despite the fact that they had this diagnosis of IBS. So that appeared to have an impact, but it could not be graded based on the guidelines. Wow, how wonderful. So we've covered many of the diagnostic questions. Let's take a break. We're going to shift gears, and now let's start thinking about treating IBS. Join us for our next podcast on IBS when Dr. Baha Moshiri and I will talk about treatment options for these patients with these difficult and persistent symptoms.